us grew up in church singing Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and we learned the hand movements. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's why we're going to read Genesis 15 this morning for the first six verses to give us some background. And sometimes we sing those songs. We grew up singing those songs, and we're like, Father Abraham, how's he my father? We don't really connect the dots, and we need to connect the dots this morning because the historical figure of Abraham isn't just put into the book of Genesis for a good history lesson. The story of Abraham is your story. It's not just a historical figure, it's your figure. Because what the story of Abraham teaches us is how we're supposed to relate to God based on how God relates to us. The way God related to Abraham is a picture of how God relates to each and every one of us. And that's the point that Paul's going to make when we get to Romans 4. But Paul is banking on his readers to go, yeah, I remember Genesis, okay? So let's go to Genesis 15, and just for a little bit of background for Genesis 15, Abraham was uh, Abram at first, before God changed his name because God changed his life, changed his wife's name too. Abram was kind of a nobody. I mean, he, 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 he had means, he had servants, he had money, uh, he was a conquering kind of dude, he wouldn't want to cross him. Uh, but he, he wasn't uh, doing anything spectacular for the Lord. He didn't conquer in the name of God and do great things for God when God chose him. God chose him pretty literally out of nowhere. He just said, you, random person, I'm going to do this big thing with you. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm making you a promise that I'm going to create this, this entire heritage out of you. Problem is, back then, the only way to have any kind of heritage, the only way you pass anything on to somebody else was through childbearing. <laughs> you had children, and those children didn't go off to college, and hmm, what random major am I going to choose? You did what dad did, if you want the inheritance. If your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer, right? And so you would take what your father took from his grandfather, from his grandfather, and now it's yours, and you don't do that without children. But Abraham didn't have any children there's the dilemma. So here we go, Genesis 15, and remembering how this is, uh, has everything to do with you. You feel like you're nobody. You feel like you don't have a huge spiritual heritage behind you. Neither did Abram, because we don't know what's behind him. God plucked him out of nowhere and is going to do something with him. Chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield your reward will be very great. How is he going to get a great reward? Even though fearful things will seek to rob it, God is the shield, and you're going to get that reward because God said you're going to get that reward. I'm the protector of it, not you. This is the lesson that Abram keeps failing to remember. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Verse 2, but Abram said, uh, God, I think you're missing something. <laughs> I think you're forgetting an important detail. O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now notice God doesn't go, that's okay, we'll give it to Eliezer. No, I know you don't have children because you can't have children. Abram and Sarah weren't like, you know, Chicago urban dwelling people focus on their careers, let's not have kids. No, they wanted kids. That was the way. God doesn't go, oh, yeah, you're right. No, this is part of the plan. Verse 3. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. I'm going to have to give it to one of my servants because we don't have any children. 
Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Not that he has a particular problem with Eliezer, but that's not what's going to happen here. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Sadly, if we stand out here tonight in our parking lot, we can probably start numbering them because of light pollution. Uh, you have to get out. <laughs> get out to somewhere where you don't, you're not next to a huge city, and then look at the stars. And you start to count, and then you lose it in that spilled milk of the Milky Way, and you realize that's not fog. That's so many stars that all together it looks like spilled milk, and you can't, you can't count it. You can't even start counting it. He takes them outside. They do some stargazing, look toward heaven. Can you number those? See if you're able to number them. Then he said, while Abraham's looking up and seeing that he can't number them, so shall your offspring be. In other words, I'm not just going to give you one son. I'm going to give you son after son and daughter after daughter until you can't number them anymore. Not Eliezer. A son through Sarah's womb, even though it's impossible. Why? Because Abram and Sarah were very old. They were very old. Almost 100 years old, she was barren her whole life. And now that she's going to have not just one child, but there's going to be an entire lineage, an innumerable lineage through them. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord. He believed that God is going to do that promise. And then what did God do? He counted that belief to Abram as righteousness. Before Abram does anything, before he rescues Lot, before he offers Isaac up on the mountain, before Abram does any of his Abram things, before he becomes Abraham, this figure that would be respected throughout Scripture. Remember when, when the Jews are arguing with Jesus? Our father is Abraham. He's this figure. Like, if, if you're one of Abraham's, you're in, right? Jesus doesn't tell them, oh, well, Abraham doesn't matter. He tells them, it would be great if you were. You're actually not. How does, how does Abraham become the figure that he is? It's verse 6. He believed the Lord when he told him he's going to do this promise. He's going to create this nation through the one son, even though Sarah can't have children, even though you can't have children, even though neither of you were ever able to have children, I'm going to make it happen. And by Abraham believing it, God counted it as righteousness. That's our intro to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4. Now, some of you... Um, are this type of Christian, or you know a type of Christian, who's still confused on the point that we're going to strike home today, I hope, that your good standing with God is not based on what you do. Your good standing with God is based on what He has done. Does that sound too easy? Well, it's not. But that's, that's the rule. So at the top of chapter 4, at the top of chapter 4, let's look at the first eight verses to see this God counting something as righteousness that by itself wasn't righteous. It wasn't a righteous work or deed, but God counts it as righteousness anyway. And that's why people get confused. That's why people get caught up. He says, 
Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? What was the big deal about him being our forefather? Father Abraham had many sons. Why do we sing that? They didn't sing that, but you know, that's the, that's the question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So Paul is saying, if Abraham got in good standing with God because he did great things, then Abraham would be able to stand before God and be like, see, we should have a relationship because look at all the stuff I did. But God doesn't want it like that. God wants it to be the only reason why we stand before God is because the only thing we can point to is stuff God did because God doesn't share boasting rights. Now, I, talk, I have conversations periodically sometimes with Christians who don't understand that God is a self-glorifying person. He glorifies himself? That sounds selfish. Who does that? Who of who you really befriends a person that you're like, you know what my favorite thing about this person is? They constantly just talk about themselves. Everything they did, how everything is awesome. Every time I talk about something I did, they turn it into something they did. A total one-upper. I hate that person, right? Usually it's not, that's my best friend. If you're that type of person, cut it out, because that's why you don't have any friends. <laughs> but Scripture talks about God going, no, 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 I set it up this way so that you cannot point to anything you did. If we're going to have a relationship, you, you have to have zero that you can boast about, and everything is on me. And the reason why that doesn't make God a selfish jerk, the reason why that doesn't make God narcissistic is because he is worthy of it. The second reason why that makes God a great God and not a God that you don't want a relationship is because if it were left up to our works, there would be no relationship. There would be no righteousness because we can't do it. That's why the first couple chapters of Romans were so hard and smashed us down, like left us with nothing, right? They were hard to listen to because we start realizing, man, I, I've got nothing. Just like people out there who didn't grow up in church, they didn't sing Father Abraham, they didn't go to Awana, they didn't memorize scripture, I'm lost too. If I'm, if I'm banking on standing before God and pointing to my resume. So if Abraham was justified by works, he wouldn't have anything to boast about before God. And his implication is neither would we. So let's understand what really happened with Abraham so we can be in good standing with God. And here's how it works. What does Scripture say? Verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, what we just read. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as David also speaks, it's not just Abraham. Look, David knew this. Verse 6 also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose law, lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So God's math is what saves you. Even if it doesn't make human sense to, to us, because to us, it's, I have to earn it. I've got to be able to do certain things. And what Scripture is saying is, well, the things that you did actually unearn it. <laughs> We've do, we do stuff, but we fail. We don't have the right track record. We've got sins to take care of. We've got lawless deeds that we've done. That doesn't mean everything you've ever done in your life was a lawless deed. Everything you've ever done in your life was sin, but there's sin throughout it. 
And sometimes, a lot of those times, well, all the time, apart from Christ, even the good things we do really are for self-glory. They're for selfish motives. So we've got this bad stuff that has to get taken care of, and we've got this good stuff that we don't have, this righteousness. And God says, God forgives the bad stuff and doesn't count it against you. Instead, what does he count for you? Righteousness. So what should be counted against you is taken away, and what can't be counted towards you is counted towards you, righteousness. And how does that happen? Through faith. Because faith is a gift, verse 4. The one who works gets wages. You don't want a work-wage relationship with God. You lose. What you want is God to give you a gift that wasn't based on something you did. And that's why God sets it up that way, because he wants you to be in right standing before him because he gave it to you as a gift. He doesn't want it to be you are in right standing with him because you, you can say, that's what I thought. You saw my stuff, right? That's what I thought. Let me in now. No, it's, it's a gift. And so as he makes it clear, the only way for something to count as righteous is through faith so that we can't boast and God gets all the glory. And this word count there, if you're into highlighting, you're gonna, you might need a couple markers here because that word count re- repeats in verse 3, verse 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11. takes a little break and then 22, 23, 24. Count, count, count. So if you're wondering, what is the emphasis here? How do you get a righteousness that is counted to you so you can stand before God, so you can be in covenant relationship with God? Paul answers that question by going to Abraham. How did it go in the beginning? How was it for Abraham? For Abraham, it was a faith that counted as righteousness, not a work that counted as righteousness. And what we see in the next few verses is him explaining that righteousness by faith didn't just apply to Abraham, it applies to you. This is how you come before God. It worked this way for Abraham, and it works this way for all who follow suit. Look at 9 through 16. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Remember we talked about those circumcision and uncircumcision represents the insider group and the outsider group. Parallels being the insider group is the group of us who've grown up in church and we're familiar with the Bible and the pastor says turn to John and you know where the gospel is and you remember the songs you sung as a kid. You know what the word Sunday school means. And then you've got the outsider group who were the Gentiles. They didn't have the law. They didn't have synagogues. They didn't go to the temple. They weren't exposed to special revelation. Insider group, outsider group. So is this blessing of Abraham only for the insider group? No, no, no. It's anyone who exercises faith. For we say, verse 9, that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Now, now check. This is interesting because it's not that circumcision was unimportant. He's just saying, what came first? Did Abraham believe and then he was circumcised? Or did God have him circumcised, take that, that sign and receive the law, and then he had faith? Well, it's the reverse. And the reason why it's important is because what made Abraham... What, what was effective for him to be in relationship with God? Was it stuff that he did or something he believed? And Abraham says both are important, but consider the order. He believed first, and then he did stuff. So that the things that he did flowed from the belief, not the other way around. 
So Paul is not communicating law doesn't matter, works don't matter, who cares about works? He doesn't say we're saved by faith instead of works. It's faith apart from works. Faith by itself first. Then that produces the stuff that we do. So the order is very important. And he says, verse 10, how was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose, the reason why God did it in that order, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. In other words, God set it up this way so no one would have to earn it. I mean, what if Abraham was a special dude and he was able to earn it, but that leaves the rest of us out because none of us can. No, he intentionally set it up so that Abraham was brought in to relationship with God, not based on the stuff that he does, but based on a faith that brings him in, and now that he's in, okay, now he starts doing things so that it would work that way for each and every single one of us. Some of you might still be on the outside because you're still waiting to perform enough. Some of you have been, you know, not really involved in church yet. You're not really, because you feel like, I got to clean up my life first, then I'll get involved. None of us would be here, folks. Not one person would be here if we had to get in that way. The only way in is for something to be counted to you that you didn't do. This is why it's so hard. When we think of something that counts, you know, for me, I think of sports. And I've been trying to get into football a little bit lately, and I get really confused when they do the replays. I'm like, is that a touchdown? Is it not? Is it the feed? Did he fumble it? Does he have control? How do you define control? I'm confused. I've never, I didn't grow up with football. Honestly, I feel like the baseball rules are a lot clearer, but just saying. But even in baseball, what do they do? They go to the replay. They have to look at it. You either cross the line or you didn't cross the line. The tag was first or it wasn't first, right? It either is or isn't based on what the player did. What's so hard to understand about this is if you go to watch the replay, you always lose. But the, imagine that the MLB commissioner was like, great, but this other game over here, this player slid in safe, and we're going to count that safe slide as that so safe what are you talking about the replay shows he's out i know he's out you're all out but this player over here was safe and i'm gonna make that count for you how happy would the fans be about that that's why it's hard to grasp and it's hard to come up with an illustration because what what, how where else in life does this work that way it doesn't and so in our hearts we slide back to like okay i get it but i really have to earn it don't i no you, you can't It's counted to you from the outside, what theologians call imputed righteousness. That is an alien righteousness, not UFO aliens, meaning not inherent to you. It comes from outside of you, given to you by something that somebody else has done. God is the shield. God is the one that protects the reward. God is the one that delivers on the promise. God is the one that's going to do all of this. What Abraham has to do is believe that that transfer happens. And it's important that this happened before the works of Abraham, before the law, before the circumcision, before all those official things that were good and they were signs, they were seals. But the reason why God did it, look, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them being all of us as well. Verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk 
in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's not saying everyone who's circumcised, what a waste of time. Everybody who was Jewish and learned the law and did what they were supposed to do under the Mosaic Covenant, what a waste of time. No, no, not a waste of time if you follow the footsteps of faith while you did it. The order is important. Faith comes first because faith births everything else. It's faith in what God has done, not faith in what I'm able to do. And we need to grasp that. That's encouraging. Now, as he pushes forward, he helps us to understand that without this, all of our law-keeping is just problematic for us. We won't dwell too long here because we dealt with that in the previous chapters. But look at verses 13 to 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, there's all the stars, did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is... Back up, verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. I'm just going to point a couple things out just for point of clarification and then we'll move ahead. But what he's saying is if it had to do with the things that we do, but the promise is what God is able to do, I'll be your shield. I'll protect your reward, but really, you're protecting your reward, then the promise doesn't make sense. It actually deletes the promise. It makes it void. It cancels it. It rips up that, that deal. The deal is, I'm going to do it, not you. So as we enter in and we enter into it, we're like, okay, God, you're going to do it, but I've got to do it. I've got to do it. We, we, we risk, we run the risk of ripping up that contract so to speak, because it's based on what God is able to do. And then verse 15 makes clear, the law brings wrath because where, where there is no law, there is no transgression. The more we learn about what we're supposed to do, the more we learn of the, more we learn of the bar that we keep missing. And as we learned in the previous chapter, that incurs wrath. Then the question is, well, how do you get out from under the wrath? Keep trying to meet the bar? No, no, no. Trust in the one who made the bar for you, who met the bar, who superseded it for you. He gets to that at the end of this chapter, and we'll get there. But then he wants us to know, okay, if it's by faith, I want you to know what kind of faith this is. And we're going to see five aspects of this faith, at least how I count it. Two of them are kind of the same. But I'm going to show you five aspects of, if you're wondering, do I have this kind of faith? I feel like I have faith. Is it this kind of faith? Because Paul is saying it's this kind of faith that saves you. This is what faith looks like. So let's not play make up our own faith religion, but let's understand what Paul means by the kind of faith Abraham had, because his argument is if you're going to be in, if you're going to follow suit with Abraham and be in right standing before God because you have what it took to be in right standing before God, and what it took is what Abraham had, well, what he had was faith, but let's be clear about what that faith looked like so that we can examine ourselves, like, do I have my, this faith? Is this, does this describe my faith? So five aspects of this faith in verses 17 to 22. And the first one is, it's a kind of faith that believes, uh, that believes God has already done something, even if he hasn't done it all the way yet. Faith doesn't wait for proof. 
Faith believes it is, even though it hasn't yet. Okay. Look, at, look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So there's where we left off. It happened for Abraham by grace so that it can be this way for all of us. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. I have made you the father of many nations. Now, when God is telling Abraham that, Abraham's like, what nations? Because it hasn't happened yet, right? But look at, the, look at the words that God uses. He didn't say, I am going to make you. I have made you the father of many nations. So when we trust in God and we trust that he is saving us, we also trust that he has saved us all the way. I know this pushes into controversial territory, but I just cannot help it. If I believe that God might save me, that is not the Abrahamic faith. If I believe God will save me, that's still not quite the Abrahamic faith. If I believe God has saved me all the way, that's the Abrahamic faith because Abraham by faith is grasping something that hasn't happened yet. It wouldn't for centuries. Now, you might be having a hard time. You might be feel like you're in a rut. You might feel like right now you're not really into the Bible and you're struggling with that. Oftentimes people come to me when they come to me for you know, counsel. It's like, Pastor, I'm struggling with this. Am I a Christian? And I'm like, the fact that you are struggling with it makes me want to say yes, because the non-Christian doesn't struggle with it. They don't care. But you're, you're sick and tired of falling into the same device over and over again. You're reaching out for help. You want to progress. You want to pursue. You want to do better. And even though you're having a hard time right now, that doesn't negate that God has saved you. You're in the fight, and you're a little bloody right now. Might have to patch you up a little bit. You might need to put your arm around some other Christians and, and get born up in support. That's Galatians 6, 1 and 2. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Abraham believed that God has done the promise already, even though it hasn't happened yet. That's why I believe that the true believer places faith in God's whole salvation, not placing faith that God gets you started and maybe you finish carrying it out, but that God is your shield and God will make the reward happen, just as he said, in Genesis 15. So it's the kind of faith that believes that something is already is, even though it hasn't happened yet, in verse 17. And it's the kind of faith that is a faith in God. This is a little complicated, but, but bear with me. It's a faith in God, not a faith in the promise. It's not the promise itself that you believe in. It's the promise maker. It's the one who makes the promise that you believe in. Because the promise itself, that's crazy. The promise by itself, that doesn't make any sense. Even though you've sinned, even though you've done some egregious sins in your life, God still, he wipes it away? How does that happen? It is a crazy promise, just as crazy, if not crazier, than a barren woman who's never able to have children her whole life. Now she's 
her and her husband are like 100 years old, and now suddenly they're going to bear a child? That is crazy. Well, he doesn't believe the promise. He believes the one that makes the promise. Look at verse 17. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. Who did he believe in? He believed in God. And this God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Where does your mind race to, if you're familiar with Scripture at all, when God brings something into existence out of nothing? Well, creation. It's dark, and God says, let there be light. Light pops in because God said so. It's not because it made sense. There was nothing there for him to work with. He just spoke it into existence. That's the old doctrine called ex nihilo, out of nothing. God spoke it. It's existing. From darkness, God speaks light. And what Paul is saying is from death, God speaks life. There's death and God brings life out of nothing. Meaning nothing to do with what you and I do or don't do. We're dead and he goes, and it's life. That kind of God is the kind of God Abraham believes in. And if we have a lower view of who God is, a God that is a maybe kind of God, a sometimes kind of God, that's not the right God. <laughs> and therefore you're believing in something different than what Abraham believed in. Abraham believed in an ex nihilo God who takes nothing and makes something. That is amazing. I thank God for that. We realize it's a faith not in the promise, but in the promise maker. We realize it's a faith, the first one that we looked at, is a faith that believes that something already is, even though it hasn't yet. The third aspect is a faith that's against all odds. It's a faith that's against all odds. In verse 18 it says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. What does that mean? He, in hope he believed against hope. Well, there was no hope. The only hope that there was was for him to have a servant. The only hope that he could think of when he was challenged, you remember, Sarah was like, why don't, look, this isn't happening. It's not going to happen. Why don't you go in with the other lady and produce a child that way? Then we'll kick that lady out and it'll be our kid. Hoping in a human way of getting things done. And God rebukes that. Wait for me to get it done. And so even though it doesn't look like it's going to happen, even though God sets it up in a way that it seems impossible, when you're reminded of your sins that should keep you out of relationship with God, you're not supposed to go, you know what? They're not that bad. Those sins aren't that bad. And compare yourself to other people. You're supposed to go, those are bad. Those would keep you out. But thanks be to God, I don't get into right standing with God based on what I've done. But based on what He does, even though he had much to trouble him when it comes to his faith, look at verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, goodness, don't tell any of our older people that, I mean, goodness, good as dead? Well, in terms of having kids, that's what he means. And then look what he says, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, actually the Greek says the deadness of Sarah's womb. She cannot give life. Well, she's always been like that. 
now it's worse because now not only is her condition one where she has a, a dead womb, so to speak, she's old. And even if she ever had a chance, now she's got two things stacked against her. Three things if you count the old husband. And so those were things that he considered. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered these things, his own body, the state of his wife. The faith that Abraham exhibited was a faith that persisted despite the things that point in the opposite direction. That's faith. If everything pointed in the right direction, if he went and got an ultrasound and was like, whoa, her womb is totally fine. If they woke up the next morning, no wrinkles, back felt great. Wait a minute. Somehow, like... We're younger. Then it would make sense. God wants it to not make sense. That the womb that can't bear a child bears a child. The man that can't have a child has a child. So that the only thing they can point to is God's utter grace and power to step into somebody's life and turn death to life and turn darkness to light. That's how God does it. That's his MO. And even there's a lot to consider to make us rethink it. We'll always be tempted to rethink it. Abraham was. And that's what's interesting about this fourth aspect is that Abraham's faith didn't waver. It didn't waver. It didn't weaken. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver. Concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. This is going to be one of the biggest relief moments I can ever give you from up here. When you look at that, you're like, wow, he never wavered? He just had perfect faith every step of the way? You know that's not true. All you have to do is go back and read Genesis. If you want to be disappointed in this man that we call our spiritual father, go read Genesis. You're going you're gonna to plop the Bible down like, this guy, that was dumb. And one of the dumbest things he does, just keep reading, he does it again. And those things that he does, it's those moments where he's tempted to disbelieve the very promise that God gave him. And so one instance, uh, one of those instances is where uh, I already mentioned, let's do this the human way. You know, why don't, why don't you go with a younger woman just for a night, just for one night, and then we'll, that'll be our heir. Oh, okay, Sarah, bad move, man, bad move. Then there's a king who's very interested in Sarah. He's like, hey, tell them you're my sister, because if they find out you're my wife, then they'll kill me, and they want to take you, so let's just be a brother and sister while we're here. Then God visits the king in a dream, and he's like, you better not touch that woman, I'll kill you. And then he gets mad at Abraham. Why did, why did you lie to me? Oh, oh, sorry. Then what happens again? They do it again. Hey, remember that whole sister lie, how it didn't work last time and God got real mad? Yeah, let's do that again. And it's not about love triangles. It's about her uh, being taken from Abraham such that someone else starts having babies with her instead of Abraham. And then wh- where's the promise? The threat is not the marriage, although that's there. The threat is the promise through the marriage. And Abraham's like, oh, how do we protect the threat? How do we protect this? 
if I get killed and they take Sarah, then the, the promise won't happen through me. Rather than believing God, he tries to manufacture something. A first time, a second time, a third time. The second and third are exactly the same as each other, and they're both dumb. Right? When we're reading it from an outside perspective, we do the same thing. Trying to protect our wife, trying to protect our marriage, trying to protect the promise we're trying to protect. And this is how we live our lives, too. We're like, yeah, I believe, but oh, I messed up here. I got to patch that up. I got to fix this. Oh, I haven't been to church. I got to start showing up. And I'm, I'm the last person to tell you, don't worry. I'm not going to say don't worry about going to church. Don't worry about reading your Bible. It's not that. But when we do those things in a way that tries to scramble to fix what we're losing, we're losing salvation here. Let's fix it along the way. That's not the Abrahamic faith. The Abrahamic faith is we do those things because we're saved. We don't do those things to maintain the salvation, like all these spinning plates, and we're trying to keep them from falling because if they fall, we got to get saved all over again. It's a kind of faith that operates, firstly, from trusting that God has done this, and it's a kind of faith that doesn't waver even though it wavers. That's why this is probably the hardest of the, the five aspects I'm going to share with you. You read Abraham's story, and it is up and down, his faith. It is up and down. He does these stupid things, these foolish things. But over the course of time, God keeps him. He's going to do the stupid thing. He tells the king, what does God? God steps in. And tells the king, don't do it. And God is the shield and protects Abraham from his own foolishness and brings him back into the right lane. He does it again. God doesn't kill Abraham. Forget it. I'm going to start with some other guy over here. God brings him out of it again. The weird episode with the other lady, they do that and they have Ishmael. And Sarah's like, get this lady out of here. You know, that kind of thing. God is like, look, I'm going to take care of her over here. You guys get back on track. So there is this sort of cleaning up the mess and keeping the plate spinning, right? But God is the one that does it, not Abraham. God keeps us, not us. And it's interesting that from God's perspective, verse 20, no unbelief made him waver. Why? Because in the end, there was this ultimate test where God is like, look, I'm sick of these little episodes of you trying to pass your wife off as your sister. I'm sick of these episodes of you concocting things with the servant in your house. I'm sick of you doing things over and over again, these foolish episodes. Let's settle this once and for all. I want you to experience the greatest challenge to your faith ever. You've already been given your son. You already have Isaac. He's a strapping young man. And I want you to tell Isaac you're going to take him up on top of this mountain and you're going to kill him. Now I'm going to kill that promise. What does Abraham do? He's like, I guess we're going to go up there. And what he figures in his head is, I'm going to kill Isaac, but that promise still has to stand. Even if I plunge that knife into Isaac's chest and he's dead, I can't come down the mountain without a son because then the promise wouldn't be there. So I guess God is so powerful that he'll bring Isaac back to life. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us Abraham was thinking. And that was the true test. That even though there was all these little episodes along the way, when push came to shove, Abraham trusted God to the point of the most extreme example, the most extreme hindrance to consider. What if that promise itself is killed? Well, then God will bring him back because God does not lie. And he promised that he would do this great thing. 
So the point of relief for us is even when our faith wavers, even when we have struggles, it doesn't necessarily mean we're out. It means we're in progress, and God is doing something in our lives to shape us and fashion us, and we'll be more faithful tomorrow than we were yesterday through these ups and downs sometimes. Last one really quickly. It's a kind of faith that believes God fully, uh, that believes fully in God's ability, which relates back to what we've covered already in the second one, this ex nihilo God. It's not the kind of thing that we believe because we, he's, he just doles out random promises and we believe random promises, a specific promise, and we believe that God himself is able to do it. Verse 21, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You believe that God does it. Your faith is not in what you are able to do. And then he culminates in the specifics of the promise. That thing that Abraham only had a fuzzy view of. He didn't have the full picture, but we have the full picture. Paul lays it out very clearly in these last couple verses. But for ours also, the words it was counted for him, verse 23, but the words it was counted for him, for Abraham, were not written just for Abraham, for his sake alone, but for ours as well. It will be counted to us who believe. Believe in what? Here's the specifics and what Abraham wasn't able to fully see, but we have to see it specifically. It is counted, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Who killed Jesus? Or we can say the Romans did it, the Jews handed him over, the disciples that didn't step up to the plate in the moment. That's all true, humanly speaking. But according to passages, there are, there are several, but according to a passage like this, it was God. Jesus, our Lord, verse 25, was delivered up for what purpose? To what end? For our trespasses and for our justification he was raised. The Romans didn't deliver him up for our trespasses. They could care less about you. This action transpired for your benefit your trespasses to be taken care of, the things that do count against you, for those to be taken care of and wiped away. And God provided Jesus Christ to be that sacrifice. There are churches, pastors, preachers, scholars, who do not believe that. That would be wicked. God is not, God is not a wicked father to give up his own son who didn't do anything. They, they worked it together, but... but <laughs> I mean, John 3.16, God gave. He didn't like, oops. Jesus didn't rebel against the Father. I know you don't want me to do it, but I'm going to do it. Father, I'm going to do it for them. It was the Father's idea. And the Father executed the plan through His Son, Jesus Christ, because He wanted to demonstrate His love to the world in this way, to give His only Son, who was delivered up for our trespasses and then raised for our justification so we can be made right with God. We didn't do anything on Calvary. We didn't do anything to get Jesus out of the tomb. It happened because Jesus did it. And your faith has to rest wholly on that work 
of God. Otherwise, you're still an outsider. You don't have to work your way in. You have to trust that God has done the work already. And you place your faith in that work of Jesus Christ to take care of our trespasses and to do what needs to be done for our justification is counted to you in an unfair way. Because we didn't earn it. Jesus earned it. I'll close with this. If you think back to that episode on Mount Moriah, as Abraham is taking his son Isaac up, oftentimes we refer to this as the sacrifice of Isaac. But really that's a misnomer because Isaac wasn't sacrificed, was he? As Abraham is raising that knife and he's about to go through with it, the angel of the Lord steps in, stops him, and says, no, 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 no. Glad your heart was in the right place, but your sacrifice isn't going to be the thing that makes us good together, that makes you in right standing with me. My sacrifice is going to be the one that makes you in right standing with me. I just wanted you to see what it was like. I wanted you to see that, that transaction, that some, there has to be a death and a resurrection for this to work. But the ram caught in the thicket, and, and, and the angel says, now take that ram and you sacrifice that. In other words, it can't be Isaac because Isaac is you, and Isaac needs to be saved. That has to be something else. Well, it can't be a ram because animals have nothing to do with man's transgression. So there's this mystery, isn't there? Like, huh, there has to be something that there's death and resurrection that makes this real, but it can't be us and it can't be a ram, so who's it going to be? It's got to be God-man himself, this eternal being that can take an eternal punishment instantaneously, who is also man because man is the one deserving of the punishment. And so because he's God, he has the right to transfer righteousness to another account. And because he's man, he's able to earn it so that he can transfer that righteousness to our account. So what Abraham saw in a fuzzy way, we see in a clear way. Not a ram caught in a thicket, but Jesus Christ himself wearing the crown of thorns and bearing his own wood on the cross and being the sacrifice so that our trespasses are counted to him and his righteousness is counted to us. And it's that exchange that saves us to the glory of God alone. Let's pray.